the In Conversation podcast series with author Nigel Beckles. Welcome to the podcast. Get ready for takeoff. Welcome back to my In Conversation podcast series. My guest for this episode is copywriter and breast cancer awareness advocate, Dr. Marlene Ellis. Greetings, Marlene. Welcome to my podcast series. How are you? Greetings, Nigel. It's a, it, I'm well. I'm well. I'm, you know, I'm grateful to be able to breathe. And it's a pleasure to be doing this podcast with you. Oh, thank you very much. That's kind of you. So what have you been doing recently? As you know, I, I'm in Philadelphia. A couple of years ago, I got sick in uh, 2018. I was diagnosed with cancer. In that year, in fact, it was 2017. In 2018, whilst I was undergoing treatment, I had four members of my family pass away. And all of a sudden, life seemed too short, you know, and the majority of them live in America. And I was coming backwards and forwards, sort of burying people. So my brother said, you know, one of the visits, why do you keep going back when most of us are here? And then I think I got to uh, towards the end of the year, my brother Robert passed unexpectedly. And I heard this voice say, that's it, Marley, you know, just go and spend more time around your family. So I actually spend more time in America than I do anywhere else now. And uh, I'm in Philadelphia. So I'm busy here enjoying being here very much enjoying being here but I also do a lot of writing on race issues I uh, work as a copywriter as a freelance copywriter which I am really enjoying so you know I keep myself pretty well occupied and of course there's the pandemic and we've had this huge movement at the moment um, in response to um, the death of George Floyd so all in all, you know, there's there's a lot to do and there's a lot to think about. In these times, indeed, there is a lot to think about. But how did you find the transition from living in the UK and then moving over to the States? Actually, what I realised was that I had been going backwards and forwards to the States for 20 odd years and maybe 30 odd years. And what I didn't realise is how much I had become a part of it anyway. You know, um, the years pass and you suddenly think, actually, this is a part of me. The, the, the transition, you know, a lot of being in a different country is, is your is your state of mind. And once you've got that clear, the transition is not hugely difficult for me. So, I, you know, coming backwards and forwards uh, between the US and the UK for a long time, it doesn't really... I love it, actually. But I, I think what I've learned about myself is I probably... I prefer being on a continent than I do an island. You know, that sense of space. The presence of being around a, a bigger black population means a lot to me. So, I, I, you know, I really appreciate that. I understand you attended university. I assume you attended in the UK. So which subjects did you qualify in? Well, I was a mature student. So I actually went to work first. My first job was as a police officer. So I, that was my first occupation. So from 17 and a half, I was a police officer in the Metropolitan Police for, for like 12 years before I, I became a sergeant, the first black woman sergeant, and then thought I might be good enough to go to university. So it was a long time later, you know, that I thought I... I'm, I must try out what the, what is this thing that they talk about university? That's how, you know, uh, estranged it was for me. So I got into 
South Bank to do a law degree on the basis of being a police sergeant. So, you know, it's said something about the taking that exam allowed me to a free entry into that law degree. And then um, I got a taste for education and I think there was no looking back for me after that. So I came in and out but always felt this quenchable thirst, unquenchable thirst for education. So I went back after the law degree and did a master's degree in ethnic and gender studies. I realized that law wasn't my interest so much as the issues of race and gender and class. And after my master's degree, I then started working in a lot of community-based areas and there was a, an opportunity to do a postgraduate certificate in education funded by the state. So I took that opportunity and gravitated into becoming a professional teacher, um, teaching law um, at A-level, but again realized that this wasn't going to keep me and my curiosity. And um, so I did a postgraduate certificate in management whilst I was teaching, but really thought I could stretch myself to the PhD. I was working in a further education college and learned for the first time as a teacher that these things that I had experienced at school where teachers would look at me with a sort of low expectation wasn't to do with Marlene Ellis per se, but the colour of my skin because suddenly I heard my colleagues talking in the same vein about black students and that prompted me to do a PhD that looked at the experiences of black students in further education colleges. My degrees have had different disciplines but I think I've always been pursuing a sense of social justice. I want to step back a little bit and explore with you joining the police force especially as you joined some time ago I'm assuming it was probably pre-McPherson era before the death of Stephen Lawrence in 1993. So what inspired yeah. you to join the police force? I've got a, we say, sort of a special background in that I was a black child grown up in care. You know, you hear those stories of black children that are left abandoned and picked up by social services. And I was one of those babies. So I grew up in foster care, um, fostered to a home in family in Hartford that was an all white, all the town was all white and the school was all white. I grew up in that environment. And um, so I was very, very defined by my race. I was constantly looking for acceptance and approval from my family. And my father, my foster father, had a high respect for the police. And I had two older foster brothers. They were all one family, and I was fostered into that family. And those two boys, my dad's biological children, they applied to join the police force and didn't get in. And uh, so I knew that the police force held respect in my family and as naive as it sounds I applied to join the police force for that reason I was really trying to get their respect and and I got into the police force and uh, I always remember them saying to me after I got in saying uh, my foster mum saying I'll never respect the police force ever again and I kept thinking I don't understand it I, I can never win just that's bad luck you know just as I've got in they, they don't like the police now What's happened? It never, it took me a very long time to recognize that I was the problem 
you know. I joined the police force because I was trying to win the approval and acceptance of my foster family, hmm. my white foster family. And having joined the police force, I lost their approval because what I didn't understand at the time is that their children, their, their sons had not got in the police force. And because of that, I think what they felt why they accept me and not their sons and, and, and there was a whole mixed uh, confusion why I joined the police force that's what I'm trying to say it had nothing to do with justice or community it was essentially because I was trying to win the approval of my white family and what was it like when you were in the police force a lonely experience. I wasn't really connected to the other black police officers and, and nor did I was I prepared for the level of racism from the white police officers. So I I found it a very lonely experience. I wouldn't say I was a particularly good police officer, but I tried to, you know, I, I think when you've got a background like mine, it was not a good choice because you don't know yourself well enough to be able to make decisions with such power and authority, you know, on somebody else. So I found it very challenging, but I was very active. Having said that, I worked very, very hard to create a black police association. I was very committed and, and went around meeting every black police officer I, I knew in the Mets. But as soon as I became a sergeant, came the first black woman sergeant in the Met. And I made a conscious effort to try and create a black police association. That really was my, le- although it's, I don't go down on record for that, that was, I would say, my legacy because um, it was a real struggle to get policemen interested, black policemen interested. And in the end, I'll be honest with you, uh, I went to some senior white women and it was their actions that really started the ball rolling in trying to create a black association. Until they got involved, it was very difficult, you know, to get black policemen involved. Back in the day, I was a unison rep and I was secretary of the Black Workers Housing Group. And I do echo that experience. Some black staff were just not interested. You can tend to be seen as a troublemaker or you're stirring up trouble. I found myself targeted not only by white staff but by black staff as well so yeah so i can understand me too me too yeah yeah. i felt i must be honest with you i felt that black policemen in the police force didn't want to go anywhere near me they were more comfortable to be with white women than they would be around me and the epa the black police association only launched once i worked with white women to get that launch and i'll be honest that was the final cause of my departure that lack of support i felt from my black male colleagues well i understand you're also a political activist so what inspired you to take that particular route i think for me i've i've learned as i've learned to more about myself i've been on the continual you know commitment to growth i've learned about the you know the wider structural relationship to racism and understand that um, although many see the police as particularly racists 
I know from my, my journey that they are not particularly racist. You see the outward manifestation of their conduct, but I also saw as a teacher that was a, became a university lecturer as well as an A-level teacher that teachers at all levels do as much damage and in a less bloody sense to black youth. So there was, it became very obvious to me that the structural systemic idea of racism had to be tackled and my activism was a sort of a, gen, a, a sort of a natural growth in getting that clarity that it's not in the police that you get justice it's the the structures that need to be addressed and so you eventually inevitably have to arrive at a political solution and i went to look for where that lay and uh, I have to be honest with you, you realize that the, the party political systems are also part of the structural problem. So my activism is concerned with what do we do about the problems we are in? If it's not about just teaching and if it's not about just having better police officers, what is the solution? And, and I work with people called Sister Esther Stamford-Cosse, Coffee Clue. Sister Jande Soa, they work on a campaign called Stop the Manga Mizi campaign. And they're conscious that you cannot dismantle the master's house with the master's tools. So Manga Mizi is Swahili for the annihilation. We must stop the destruction of us as a black people. And how do we go about doing that? And Stop the Manga Mizi campaign has what I think is a very good solution, at least a strategy that takes us beyond protesting is, of course, important, but where is it to take us? And how do we do that? And I think we are in a place where we should now be talking about what next? What is, what is the strategy to do next? And what's become clear, Nigel, is that when we got sick with this virus, it was a pandemic. It was a global virus. I could catch a flu in Philadelphia and you're going to catch it in England. So we were very much connected. We saw with one man die, of course, it's not just one man die, but George Floyd triggered a global response. So we must have a global solution. You know, the idea of us being black people in different nations with different national solutions clearly could not work. Uh, so I, I'm interested in my activism in really discussing with people the global solution to a global problem of racism, which of course is the real pandemic. So I'm overwhelmed with emotion and anger and frustration as everybody else is at this moment. And there's nothing more important than our health and our survival. So I activism and this positioning feeds everything that I do, everything. Because if it's not feeding the survival of us as an African people, then don't actually think it's worth doing. Well, you're also a advocate for raising awareness regarding breast cancer. So why did you take that decision? This for me is, is a part of the activism. I learned when I was diagnosed that we, as African women, whether we are in the UK, in the US or in Europe, we are dying 
40% faster, that's nearly twice as fast as white women for the same breast diagnosis. And and that really shocked me. And, and it troubled me because I thought, well, what happens to our next generation? If that's the rate we are dying at in 2020 uh, and and why is that same pattern occurring across europe and the uk and the us entirely different medical systems and yet it impacts us in the same way so i have a commitment in that political activism if we are if we are our priority is our survival. We now have a very special duty to uh, address the levels of cancer we're having as women, breast cancer. Um, but there's also other cancers that, that need to be addressed. But I happen to, I'm going to focus here to start off with. Please, I am due to launch a site called blackbreastcancer.com next month. Um, and I am collecting people's stories right now. I'm not a medical doctor, but this is about learning the human stories of what is happening to us. So it's, it's an absolutely deadly disease for mostly black women, but black men also suffer from breast cancer and are really quite disturbingly isolated in their experience. So if anybody is listening to this, please, whether male or female, as black people, please come forward if you feel free to talk about your story of breast cancer. But my aim is for us to work towards what is in our power to take control of our bodies, to heal our own bodies. I'm not rejecting the formal treatments. Those things have got to be personal decisions. But still, what is it that we can do to minimize our diagnosis of breast cancer? And in particular, a key problem for us is that we are we are we tend to be diagnosed with breast cancer. There's a 21-year difference. We get it earlier than white women, and we we delay going to the doctor to get ourselves diagnosed. And we have, on top of that, what they call a diagnosis of triple negatives, so that black women apparently tend to be diagnosed with a very aggressive form of breast cancer called triple negative. So when you put these three things together, we are younger, we, we, we delay getting ourselves diagnosed, and then we have a more aggressive breast cancer. These things cause a, a higher mortality rate amongst us compared to white women. That is why I'm interested. That's why I'm working in, in this area. So Marlene, how can people contact you? I'm very active on Facebook and I'm very active on LinkedIn. Otherwise, my email address is marlene at marleneellis.com. So that's M-A-R-L-E-N-E at marlene, my name, E-L-L-I-S.com. Marlene at marleneellis.com. Okay, well, thank you, Marlene, and thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Bye-bye, Nigel. Thank you for listening. Please join me for another In Conversations podcast very soon for more interesting and entertaining discussions. Stay safe.